Hello, this is Property Matters, a weekly catch-up on all matters property, supported by Fairview International Property Consultancy and auctionproperty.co.uk. We're live every Sunday at 10am on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn and our website, propertymatterstv.co.uk. And if you're watching on our website, please give us a Google review. You'll find the link right there on the homepage. You can also leave your comments in the comments section on wherever you're watching us on social media. If you'd like to get in touch via email, it's hello at propertymatterstv.co.uk. Property Matters is also available as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts from every Monday morning at 10am and the show's now also being broadcast regularly on Dilsey Radio as well so we welcome our new listeners there. We also welcome our property expert every week, Joe Joshi. Hi Joe. Hi, good morning Paul, good morning everybody, good morning to our listeners and viewers and thank you for joining us uh, every Sunday morning. I mean, you know, we do our bit so you should do your bit. (laughs) <laughs> I thought it was a good time, bearing in mind it's such a tough market at the moment, to actually reveal our top five tips of selling at the best price in a tough market. Because right now it's a buyer's market, so how do you maximise the profit on your sale? So the top five tips, putting you on the spot, Joe, off we go. Let's have tip number one, shall we? Yes, I think it's very important, um, given in the current marketplace, that uh, you know there are lots of challenges in trying to now get sales um, on your properties. Um, obviously, when it's a seller's market, uh, most people don't tend to take too much care into uh, how they're going to um, present their property or how they're going to get, because obviously the market demands are there. So it's just the case of it being at the right money, at the right location, and before you know it, you probably find a buyer. But times like now, where obviously with mortgage interest rates being going up, it becomes a little bit more challenging. So my top first number one tip would probably be curb appeal. Curb appeal is is a really, really important part in any any property. It doesn't matter whether it's residential, commercial, land, but it it doesn't really matter what it is. As long as it is presented uh, nicely in the first place, just like any shop window, as far as I'm concerned, you're always gonna be attracted to the one that looks the smartest, the nicest. Um, And it is within the first 10 seconds of somebody actually pulling up outside your property that they tend to generally make a decision as to whether they even want to go inside, let alone just appeal from the front. So it has to have curb appeal, number one. Without that, really, you're not even going to get to two, three and four because uh, they're not going to get inside. <laughs> they're not even going to bother to look inside any further. Um, obviously, um, price is number two. Um, and you could twist the two together because price might have driven them there. But more, more point, uh, when they get there, they need to be able to be wanting to go inside the property. So price, when you say price, um, I would say that you need to really be realistic. Do your comparables. Make sure that the agent or, or the marketing uh, company that you use have done all the right uh, due diligence in guiding you as a seller at the best possible price. Um, now, the problem with pricing is um, that it is about trying to get as much as possible for your property. It is also driven by the fact that what your neighbours have been selling. So you always feel that you don't want to undersell um, by, by comparison to others that may have sold. But what you have to remember is what they put it on the market for and what they actually accept and sell for are normally two different things. So don't get caught with that situation thinking that, oh, well, if, you know, in 99 Acacia Avenue has been on the market at £150,000, that yours is also going to be £150,000. It may be that that actually sold for £125,000. And you sitting at the market at £155,000 or above 
may mean that you're losing buyers simply because they now know that it is not what it is. Don't forget, a home is only worth what somebody is prepared to pay for it. So number two is obviously price. Number one is curb appeal. Number three, I'm going to say is declutter. Declutter means that basically when somebody does walk through that front door of your property, we've got them past one and two. They like the price. They like the front and the outside. And they've now walked in two through your front door. Nothing is worse when a buyer who may come up to your property uh, as a couple or perhaps in tow with child and pushchair and find it that they already um, find it too small at the entrance uh, because there's you at the greeting side or the or the agent and them at the entrance side and of course we're in England so it possibly could rain outside um, and you're all trying to you know shuffle your way in and of course the entrance is totally cluttered you've got your shoes, you've got your, your bags, got your all, all the bits, the coats that tend to push the door further um, into the, the closing area. And, and all of a sudden, guess what? They've already decided that the house is too small. So step back, declutter, make sure that when somebody walks in, they walk in freely and comfortably so that they already begin to feel um, that they, they like it, it fits their thing. A home is a little bit like wearing the right clothes. You go to a shop to try and buy a suit or a dress, you pick two of the same size, one always fits better than the other. Don't know why, don't know how, but one feels, and a home is a bit like that in my book, you can just wear it. You've got to walk in and you think, I like it here, this is comfortable. If it isn't comfortable from the outset, if it is cluttered and if you've already found it too small, it doesn't matter whether you've got a pogan pole kitchen at the end of it. The fact is that they've already made their decision that it is now too small and they begin to start saying, well, you know, if I was here, I would knock this porch out and I would knock this staircase around the other way and I would do all these other things. And so therefore cost is going up in their mind and they're beginning to think that you know what, this is now going to become too expensive. So we are already on that negative vibe of somebody making a decision of not wanting to buy that particular property. So declutter is number three. Number four, of course, is going to be the surroundings. Um, your neighbours must be also complementary to you. So if you feel that you're trying to sell your property, and your neighbors are probably not doing you any justice, not helping from their side, because we do make a decision, all of us make a decision about the area, the where we want to live and how we want to live, how our children should be, what kind of street we're in, is it a cluttered street, has it got lots of cars in there, can I find a parking space, am I gonna have issues with the neighbors and all that sort of stuff. So if you've got a good relationship with your neighbors and you're trying to sell your house, it's always a good thing to have a quiet little word with them and say, look, we've got a couple of viewings today. I uh, hope you don't mind I'm trying to sell my house. Can you help by perhaps moving your car or making a space for our visitors that are gonna turn up? So it's all about creating that ease of, of that person coming to view. You get that one chance to paint that first impression. Um, so paint it right, make sure that they feel comfortable and feel right um, when they're actually coming to the surroundings. 
And my five, five number five tip, of course, is going to be that we pitch the price and we pitch ourselves well. So, in the in the sense that you know you're also welcoming. The old days they used to say that um, one should put the bread bread on and make it smell nice, and uh, you know um, put put the fire on when it's winter and make it feel all homely and so forth. Um, not all of those things work because we all are trying to be green in funny ways and. Maybe we don't make the bread anymore at home, um, but yes, make sure that the uh, atmosphere in general is fresh, clean, and presentable. And oh, in those five tips, if the price is right and the feeling is good, you've got a pretty good chance of somebody showing an interest. So on number one, Joe, you talked about curb appeal. What does that entail? How do I get good curb appeal? Well, curb appeal is, is uh, the outside pool. So for, for starters, there's, uh, it's how your front is going to look like. I, I'm always conscious about curb appeal and I'm conscious about um, the front. So let me just you know break that down. If you are pulling up outside a property and you happen to have a driveway and you happen to have um, a, you know, a drop curve in front of you, you've got um, you know the space, make a little bit of an effort on if the gravel needs to be turned over, turn the gravel over, get rid of the weeds. You know, if you've got grass, cut the grass. And if it's just all paved, make sure you put some, maybe pots some plants and so forth and make it look as attractive and as, as homely as it can be. It doesn't take a lot to stage a situation where makes it feel a little bit, so that as they pull up, as a customer pulls up, they begin to feel that it's a loved for, cared for property. Nothing is worse than finding, you know, three cars of which two have been there since 1946. Um, and 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 got no wheels and, and are on their on their last leg, and and you're trying to squeeze your third one in uh, sideways, and they've actually got to go through a maze to get to the front door, um, which then probably doesn't open well because it's just full of everything right behind. So curb appeal is all about that front first ten seconds of when you pull up outside someone's house or outside your house or outside the property that you're going to be selling or buying it looks as if you want to live there. Curb appeal also means the environment, the environment that you're in. So if you're driving down, and I'm sure we've all done it, we drive down certain street, which are nicely tree-lined, we go there and we say, oh, this is a nice road, I wouldn't mind living here. And then there's another road you wanna drive straight, quick as possible, because you think, if I stop here long enough, my wheels are probably not gonna be on my car. So the question is about making sure that it is something that somebody wants to stop, look, think observe and buy curb appeal is is sex appeal they heard it here first <laughs> let's just focus on open days because these are obviously popular in the states and um that you see them increasingly over here and you know they might advertise it on the agent's website uh, and obviously put up that sort of thing on uh, social media and things creating a buzz and of course if you have an open house you can do all of the things that you talked about the curb appeal and tidying up the inside and have them all in one big foul swoop so you don't have to keep the place like that for weeks on end as people come around whenever they want so what's your view on open days and open house viewings well I think uh, I think it's a great idea. Uh, open houses and they work um, really, really well. Obviously, in the United States, where this has been sort of the foundation father of open houses, I've, I've been to open houses in the U.S. and there is just a completely different vibe. We haven't bought into that here at all. 
um, and in the United Kingdom. It's, it's not something that um, really happens. It happens perhaps at a new development, a new house, uh, a, a, you know, an expensive property where you, know, you can actually have the drive, the appeal and so forth. But to do an open house, in all honesty, in a, a, a popular, a busy location is about as challenging as it's gonna be. Because if you do do an open house, first of all, you probably haven't got enough space for people to pull up and come in and view the property. And you're always gonna um, aggravate neighbors. And that is probably the wrong start for an open house. I mean, if there's a big, this biggest disaster and letdown you're gonna have on an open house, in a, mod, in, a, in a street in the United Kingdom, which are mostly terraced properties, semi-detached, detached, ordinary types of property, haven't got enough parking space in the area. You invite 10, 15 people to the property and all of a sudden you've got a disaster on your hand before you even open the door. Why? Because they can't find a parking space. They're already gonna drive away and think, oh, to hell with this, I'm not gonna get here. So open house, in my opinion, can only work on certain types of property. As a standard home, I would definitely only entertain it one, possibly two at a time. Um, otherwise, you're not going to be able to manage the the one-to-one -one that you need to give the attention to those prospective buyers. Um, but if you've got a, a stately home or you've got a five-bedroom detached and a half an acre or an acre and you've got the appropriate parking space, open houses can work, definitely. Mm. Yeah, I get that. Um, I was, the other thing I was thinking about was uh, a lot of people now are moving out of a property so that they don't have a chain and so on. And I saw some advice the other day that said you must never, ever show your house with empty rooms on the photographs when it goes up onto Rightmove or wherever. Um, what's your thoughts on that? So should, should I actually take the photographs when the stuff was still in there so it looks like a home, people can see themselves in that home with that sort of furniture in there? Or do you think it doesn't matter that you've got empty rooms and the place is vacant on the photos? Well, there are two trains of thoughts on that. Yes, of course, um, if you're staging a property to sell, you want to stage it in such a way that um, people feel that they can actually you know just slip into that you know, the bed is in the right place the sofa is in the right place everything works really well and um, that, that's good on the other hand if it's totally cluttered you may as well not have any furniture in the place um, because basically if you've got all of your belongings and you haven't bothered to declutter to create space for people to walk around my biggest fear always about um, having furniture around and having, uh, having things is how somebody feels as they walk around. So you can imagine that, you know, if you got into a kid's bedroom for argument's sake and they've got everything and, you know, the PlayStation is there, the wires are lying around, it's just, you can't, you know, sell that because they've already, they only look in past the door. In fact, they sort of put their head around the door and go, all oh, right, okay, and then walk back, you know. What they want to be able to do is to walk into the room, stand perhaps close to the wardrobe, look outside the window from that particular window and feel themselves in that room or their child in that room or, or whatever. And so um, it's really about the circumstances. I'm not totally convinced that it creates a problem. You know, if it's sold empty or without photographs or whatever, you can stage certain properties. But even staging costs money and most people are trying to make money as opposed to add money. And I'm not against staging companies, but at the end of the day, everything is going to cost. And, you know, sellers are normally, you know, already penny pinching 
to try and say, well, I actually want the maximum and I want to pay the least. So the chances of you actually saying to them, well, actually, I think you should empty this house, move to the one you want to move to and let me stage this. By the way, that's going to cost you another £4,000. There's more chance of being struck by lightning than them actually paying you £4,000 unless it's a, you know, a million pound plus property and someone doesn't mind actually spending that kind of prop, uh, that kind of money. So um, to offer it on as a, a vacant and empty property, I don't think it's a huge issue. Photography is a bit of an art and you can photograph things in such ways that it makes it quite nice. But yes, when you have an untrained eye in terms of photography, then um, I can tell you, I remember having a a young negotiator joined me and I actually sent him out to send to, to do a picture of a, a fifth, floor, fifth floor block and he took a picture of the window after he counted five floors up um, and, and, and came back and said, I said, what's that? And he said, well, that's the fifth floor. That's the window of the living room that I counted upwards. Um, and so you can imagine that um, the horror in my, in my face by saying, well, what happened to the block? Well, you told me it had to be the fifth floor, so I've, I've done the fifth floor. Here it is. It's the window. So, uh, so, you know, so you've got to, you've got to um, have a trained eye or get a, a professional photographer to go in and do photographs, and they will do justice. Yeah, I mean, there are home staging experts who can come in and, uh, you know, make the place look its most uh, 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 attractive, I suppose, is the word I'm looking for. Uh, but the, I, I guess, really, that they only really have good times in sellers' markets, not certainly in buyers' markets, because, as you say, people are trying to maximise what they're trying to get from the property as prices are falling. Um, and the last thing that... Um, that I came across which was interesting was um, in terms of things like stamp duty liability. We had a situation a few years ago where people were offering a lot of fixtures and fittings and things for free as an incentive for somebody to buy. But of course, if you're buying uh, a property and you're not getting uh, the true value of it because there's a lot added on, you can actually end up with a stamp duty liability, which I thought was quite an interesting point. Yes, I suppose going back nearly uh, 40 years, I spent many years negotiating carpets and curtains. Um, and, um, you know, you could spend nearly six weeks discussing a £500 bit of old carpet. Um, <laughs> and um, and uh, But today we live in what we call a throwaway society. Um, and so most people would prefer not to take somebody else's um, goods on and rather have it empty. So the chances of somebody actually wanting to throw anything in and somebody else wanting to have it. It actually costs more to dispose of it. So they, most people turn around and say, it's better that they just leave it empty and they, they dispose of it rather than me trying to buy the carpets, the curtains and the lino or the, or the wood flooring or whatever they, they've got in there, if that is going to be the deal maker or breaker. But of course, if it's something that is left behind, it's great. But if it's something that they've got to pay for, the chances are that most people are quite happy to take an empty property because they'd rather go down the road and buy something new. Um, and it's probably relative in cost. Cost-wise, why? Because it's just as expensive to turn around and throw away someone else's rubbish. To hire a skip today is probably circa three, £350. And then the, the labour to come in and pull it out and so forth. And by the time you've done all of that and then reinstated it, you may as well just let them do it. So I'm not sure that that is a big ask today. Yes, in the 2007-2008 crash, there were people offering incentives um, to, to buyers, 
you know, um, they'd probably send them on a nice holiday as well if they came and bought their property at the right time. But we're not there at this, this precise moment. This market is not that kind of market. I don't think there are, you know, necessary requirements for uh, incentives. But I think if, uh, if, they take, if any seller takes heed of the basic five or six points that I have uh, pointed out, I think that would be good enough to give you the instructions and, and of course, the sale. Just as an example of what you've just been talking about uh, nearby here, I know of a developer who did a property, um, upgraded a property um, in, in this road, in fact, and uh, they put in, um, in addition to all new sort of services and things, they put in um, wooden flooring and they also put in carpets upstairs. And then the people that have bought the property have without actually having had anyone live in that property, they've ripped out all of what was supplied um, to the empty property. In other words, the, the, the uh, flooring and the, and the carpets, ripped that all up and rolled it up and left it on the front of the drive and put their new stuff in and then carted the stuff off to the dump. I mean, it just, just defies belief. Oh, it's a fact. I mean, I, 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 I remember selling a, I think it was probably about 2.7, 2.8 million pound property in a nearby town, the chap had done everything, it's brand new built, you know, lock, stock and barrel, um, and the chap who bought it ripped everything out, um, literally. And I was like, just mortified. And the, the guy who built it was just flabbergasted. I, I wish he'd, you know, come in earlier and I would have just not bothered putting that in, but it put in, you know, really good carpet, or at least what he believed was really good carpet. And the chap who came in, he just said, don't like it. Um, obviously had more money than, than that was required. Uh, we bought that, that property for cash and then ripped everything out and started again. So that's why I say it is in, 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 in the days that I started back in the 80s, we used to sort of negotiate carpets and curtains and, you know, fixtures and fitting in fridges and washing machines and all that kind of stuff. And it was so tedious when I look back, you know, we could spend weeks arguing about, you know, the wife wanting those particular curtains in that particular room. And today, most people just rip them out, throw them away, because I said, we live in a throwaway society, because it's just easier and quicker to just throw it away and start again. Indeed. Let's move on to our second story this week. Uh, the number of completed bill-to-rents, or BTRs as they're known, that's homes in the UK, has increased 13% in the past year to 88,100 units, despite market conditions slowing development activity. This is according to the British Property Federation. Research done in association with Savills show the total number of BTR homes completed under construction or in the planning pipeline stands at 253,402, which is up 12% in the last 12 months. Single-family housing continues to expand strongly with 28,000 units completed or in the pipeline, making up 12% of the BTR sector. Number of homes under construction increased by 9%, buoyed by major house builders agreeing forward funding transactions with investors, comprising over 2,000 homes for rent. Meanwhile, the number of new BTR homes in the design and planning phase increased 13% to 111,815. So the old built-to-rent sector seems to have uh, had a phenomenal year, this despite the fact that the government doesn't seem to be able to build affordable homes. It reminds me of a little song that we used to have, you know, um, what do they say, the video killed the radio star here. And uh, so here, the buy-to-let has been killed by the BTR, the BTR and the BLT, the buy-to-let buy, buy has been destroyed because 
they made it difficult for people that wanted to buy to rent out but um, building to rent to BTR is now the current buzzword on the basis that larger corporations are probably involved in it um, they can they have the space in some of them people like um, John Lewis and Tesco's and some others who've got spaces around their supermarket super stores are able to produce the space uh, quickly uh, module building comes into this um, so that they can just stack them up what's really interesting about this is that they can do this for BTR by for the build to rent scheme but they can't do this for people to just build a home and live in it um, at the speed there are and if you look at the, st the stats that are, are being thrown out they're close to 300,000 homes um, under BTR but yet we can't reach a target um, just to build homes for people for home ownership at the same level um, I think this is uh, a drive by, by the corporation and the government to say that they prefer to have blocks which they can manage and deal with and control under bigger things. A lot of the pension schemes love these things, so it is driven by big money um, because they, they will buy it. It's a bit like the, the man from the Prue, you know, they'd rather have lots and lots of little bits and, and having coming in. And so now they realize that the market in the future is going to be for people to rent. So people are building to rent. Uh, funding is a lot easier for building to rent as opposed to buy to let. Buy to let has got so many taxations, so many loopholes in that. So people have been dumping, especially what we call um, uh, accidental uh, landlords, people that become landlords just because they think that's my way of getting a bit more money. Those people are the ones that are suffering. They're, they're coming out and the corporations are probably looking to build more of these um, build to rent properties where you know youngsters are, are are able to get accommodation relatively quicker relatively cheaper um, and it's good business for those people that are building them why because they probably got a supermarket or uh, other things within that lo local area and so they've got ready-made customers coming into their, their stores yeah, I mean, you think about it; it makes uh, complete sense from a from a big corporation's point of view because not only you've got the uh, the uh, ownership of the property, uh, which is a, appreciating an asset appreciating asset most of the time, you've also got, of course, a residual income in the rents every month. And if you look at the uh, Ferry Lane site in Walthamstow in uh, in London, it's a development by Legal and General, as you say, pension companies, etc. Uh, that's regenerated an extremely rundown part of East Seventeen in London bought uh, with it 2,000 square metres of community and commercial space, which will undou undoubtedly uh, benefit the local economy. It's not just about money, they say. It's the regeneration projects bought 200 new trees, various landscaping and ecologically sound planting areas as well. They've got gyms, games rooms, um, social areas, uh, dining spaces. And I guess in a way, uh, Joe, this just reflects the, the new generation of millennials and the way they want to live. I mean, they, they've got used to this as a student as well, because, of course, a lot of student accommodation is BTR now. Yes, I mean, it is about that community cohesion. It's, it's about having the community together and, and providing everything in a, in a one-stop shop situation. And if you look back, it, they, they, these big operators destroyed the high streets in the same way. Um, and, and, you know, people used to go to the high street of, of any local town and they all started to go to outer town shopping centres where you get your big car parks, the B&Qs of the world, the Tesco's of the world have got huge uh, stores 
And now they've got is those huge stores have got the parking facilities and they've also got the opportunity to build above their stores. Um, so they're, they're taking it one stage further. Not only have they got the commercial aspect of it, but they've taken the residential, which they can rent out. And as you rightly say, they've got an income coming from the residual income side of it, the value going up, and of course, ready-made customer base that lives on the site who are going to probably use those stores to continue to shop at. So, you know, it is it is the way it's going to go forward uh, generally. And of course, that helps regeneration, doesn't it, um, in terms of derelict areas, the areas that are not happening, you know, these pension pots, pension companies can afford to to buy and create a complete new community. I didn't realise that BCR was actually pretty much born in 2012 after the Olympics because um, they uh, obviously built all the accommodation for the athletes to stay in in uh, East London, in Stratford's East Village. Uh, and then eventually they turned those, uh, that accommodation into private rentals. So BTR has been around since uh, 2012. Um, and it does make a lot of sense. But in reality, of course, the truth of the matter is it's not cheap to live in those blocks, is it? No, because they have got to be maintained. There's got to be service elements to them. And of course, you know, uh, there are lots of other hidden costs that involve. But to be perfectly honest with you, those costs are going to be there even if you bought a, a, a flat in a block anyway. So the difference here is that um, people are finding it difficult at this moment to, um, with the cost of living and, of course, affordability calculators uh, for getting their mortgage to be able to buy. So um, the companies are building to rent. And yes, um, perhaps after the Olympics, it was, it was a site originally thought to be given to housing association for um, key workers and so forth to be able to buy to, to let or, 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 or invest or have uh, uh, you know, what they call shared ownership opportunities, uh, putting their foot on the ladder and so forth. But um, you know, as, as those things became challenging, they become what we call now BTR. They've been built to rent um, and producing income for those people that built those or the government that supported that. Um, so in a way, um, it's worked out. But yes, now going forward, you know, there's, there are a lot more developments happening which are funded and are, are easily funded um, for, for build to rent, um, primarily because they can see that the residual income from those letting properties will cover the cost of any funding. It's interesting to see that BTR, with all of its supposed benefits, is not immune to the current situation. So build cost inflation and wider economic uncertainty looks to set to slow down the delivery of these constructions. So uh, the, basically this year, the first half of 2023, they're 55% down in terms of the amount of properties being built than they were in 2022. And if you go into London, where land values mean schemes are typically larger and more capital intensive, construction total just 836 units in the first half of this year. That's 80% down year on year to the half year of 2022. So they're not having it easy at the moment, as indeed are any of us. No, I mean, building materials have gone through the roof, as to be perfect, as, as everything else has. And of course, it's become relative, which means that, um, you know, things are getting priced out of the scheme. So a lot of properties that were being built by developers are now becoming expensive. The problem is that they're not selling them. So they've now had to turn towards BTR 
where they think, well, okay, I can't, you know, I can build it and I can't sell it, so I must build it and rent it. Um, and so there's, you know, a lot of developments are, are going that way. Your small 40, 50, 30, 60, even 20 size uh, apartments and, and houses and small developments are all being geared towards that. The rental market, as we know it at the moment, and we've covered it a number of times, is, is hot um primarily because people can't afford to go and buy and can't get the, uh, the funding at the moment so they are going to rent um and so the rental market is strong and there's not enough stock for people in the rental market and you can see this sector growing and growing and growing and you can imagine that this is the sort of thing that the government will be very keen on because it's obviously privately funded within businesses and uh, and they can stack them high and sell them cheap so to speak Absolutely, um, and and they will support the the corporates uh, to a large extent because they feel safer that they they are funding or letting money to uh, an entity that is able to afford it as opposed to perhaps the smaller ones. And in the two thousand seven two thousand eight financial crash, there was many uh, builders that had to go pop primarily uh, because you know it, it, there was no sales happening. Um, and so the government, and through the housing associations, perhaps were held, uh, were left hold, holding the baby, as so, as so to speak. So half the projects were finished, or half the projects were started and not even got it. And they ended up having to take them on and finish them up. So, you know, they are once bitten, twice shy. They're now very conscious of the quality of the builders that can afford to finish those projects. And if not, they would rather, as you say, stack it high and, and let it out. It's a shame that they don't really consider a slightly different method with this. So they build them and then they part sell them. So there's this, this part, the shared ownership prospect. I mean, to me, that would give uh, a lot more people the opportunity, certainly first time buyers, to get on the ladder by having, say, 50% of the property or 60% of the property and everybody wins. Yes, and that's, that's where shared ownership should come through. But unfortunately, shared ownership is made expensive. Um, on twofold, because the person that's going to the housing association that has been told to provide a percentage of properties for shared ownership means that they want the, a rent for their portion. So there's a rent part that a person has got to pay to the housing association. And then there is a mortgage part that they've got to pay to the lender for which they borrow the half the money from. So if you actually work it out, sometimes it's actually more expensive to take 50% because you still got to pay rent um, and, and you still got to pay your mortgage. So you may as well bite the bullet and take all 100% of it um, and go to the bank of mum and dad as, as they were doing and say, I'd rather have the deposit and have all of it than to give the rent part to the housing association. They don't make it attractive. What they really should do is the whole idea of the housing association is a not-for-profit uh, organisation. It is not-for-profit organisation for the face of it, but of course, it's got to pay salaries to all the executives, which ultimately take out the profit. So somewhere along the line, you know, they'll make money out of it, um, but it doesn't really serve the true purpose of what it's actually set out for in the first place. So hence why buyers tend to rather prefer to buy 100% of something smaller with maybe the funding from Bank, to bank of Mum and Dad. That has now come off the Richter scale because Bank of Mum and Dad no longer can afford to go to the bank and say, I'd like to borrow some money because that money borrowing has now become, uh, I think this week's announcement was 6.5, um, 6.6% 6 .6 is the cheapest five-year fixed 
product available at this moment in time, considering mm. it was a quarter of a percent, you know, only some months back. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's challenging is probably a good word. Well, Joe, time has beaten us once again. So thank you, as always, for your wisdom on these topics. Interesting ones this week, we hope. And that's all we've got time for. So look forward to seeing you next time on Property Matters. <music> <laughs>